least as far as I'm concerned, I hold the United States Constitution to be one of the finest documents ever composed by man to serve as a standard in the governance of men, and if properly interpreted and applied, will result in a nation that is free, that is prosperous, and that is honest. But far more importantly, I am conservative theologically, which means that I hold the Bible to be the Word of God, and that it is the only standard for faith and practice for the believer in Jesus Christ. I hold it to be inerrant and completely sufficient to guide me in the path of life on this earth so that ultimately, in the end, I will please God. The Word of God is a powerful document. The United States Constitution was written by men, smart men, but men nonetheless. And therefore, while it's a wonderful document, it's not a perfect document. The Bible, on the other hand, has as its ultimate big A author the Holy Spirit, which ensures its perfection. If you have a perfect author, you're going to have a perfect document. The Word of God is a living document. Not in the sense that you hear about on the news today, that it's to be interpreted differently by each different generation. Sometimes you hear that the Constitution is a living document. Each generation has to interpret it themselves. That's not what I mean. That's not what the Bible means when it calls itself a living document. What it means is that it has the answers to all of life's problems. It answers the deep questions that every human being has at one time or another. Three primary deep questions every human being has a need of an answer of. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? In other words, questions of identity, purpose, and destiny. These issues are not unique to a particular generation, but these questions have challenged the minds of every generation from Adam right up to the present. I think that these issues can carry more significance at different times or seasons of a person's life, but all people wonder about these things, and it's always needed. When one is about to depart this earth, questions about identity, purpose, and destiny become much more acute, especially the issue of destiny. Where am I going? So it's no insignificant thing when we find the Apostle Paul at the time of his death pouring his heart out to his younger associate, Timothy. As he comes to the end of his final letter, he gives Timothy and us final instructions. And it's very telling as to what those final instructions were. Among central, among the central of his instructions was teach the word. And this is not something that's to be taken lightly. It's of significance. It's of central importance. If you don't mind, if you have your Bibles with you, let's look at Second Timothy. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. These are the Apostle Paul's final words, final written words, final chapter of his final letter to his associate in the faith, Timothy. Paul says, after saying at the end of chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work, after establishing the significance and the perfection of the Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, he says these things to his young associate Timothy and to all pastors 
that follow Paul. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing at his kingdom, look at verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Now keep that phrase in mind. It's going to come up, and the idea will be there in Malachi. There will come a time where people want their ears tickled, and they will find out, they will seek out people that are going to tickle their ears. Verse 4, and turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside from it. It's interesting, you either hear the truth or you hear these myths. You, hear, you have your ears tickled. It doesn't seem you can do both at the same time. Paul thinks it's an either-or proposition. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I love these words. For I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved, who have loved his appearing. The rest of the book can, it has to do with some personal concerns. That, that paragraph is what was really on the Apostle Paul's mind as he spoke. I find it interesting that as the Old Testament ended, this is also one of the emphases of the Holy Spirit, the idea of the importance of preaching the Word. It was a supreme significance that Timothy, and by extension, all of those who would occupy the office of pastor, preacher, or teacher in the church, the responsibility there is to preach the Word, proclaim the Word, if you prefer. Because without an understanding of God's revelation of Himself in the Scriptures, no one will be competent to worship God, either privately or corporately. Without an understanding of God, without an understanding of His self-disclosure in the Scriptures, no one is competent, either privately or corporately, to worship God. That includes, no matter how enthusiastic you may be, and how sincere you may be, because sincerity and enthusiasm cannot compensate for lack of biblical knowledge. This is foundational. Paul's going to say it at the end of his ministry, and watch, the Holy Spirit's going to say that at the end of the Old Testament. If those whose responsibility it is to proclaim God's Word fail to do so, the spiritual health of those in their congregation will inevitably suffer. If the pastor doesn't teach, the congregation suffers. I stated it again this point that each generation may have different techniques and different styles of preaching. I own a series of books on the great sermons of all time, which admittedly is subjective and really covers mostly the last 400 years and not all time, but that's the title, Greatest Sermons of All Time. Several volumes. I have read many of the sermons, most of them actually in those volumes, and I have found that style does vary. Spurgeon had quite a different style from Luther. Wesley's style was different from Moody's, and so on. But I also must admit that there are more similarities than differences among those that are known for great preaching. 
a great sermon will stick to the meaning of the passage and will have an organization that follows and a structure that's easy for people to follow. That's what makes a great sermon, whether it's Spurgeon or Moody or going all the way back to Augustine. Some of the sermons are a little, little different than some, but they all have those things in common. They tell you what the Holy Spirit intended for us to learn from that passage. They stick to what that passage says. My observation is, then, that style has morphed exponentially in the last 25 years. The reasons for this and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm going to leave to those who are more knowledgeable in this area than I am to determine. Ultimately, it's going to be God who evaluates. And fortunately, the Holy Spirit can take even the most poorly prepared sermon or a poorly delivered sermon and enable the interested to believe it to get something out of it. And we're all thankful for that. Don't leave me over thankful. Style is not as significant as content. But some styles tend to hinder the presentation of meaningful content. Some folks today are trying to be too cool by half. And their message is hindered. Others have styles that are frankly so boring that it makes it really difficult to concentrate. So while there may be great content in that sermon, it's a challenge to perceive the content of that sermon if you happen to have fallen asleep during the sermon. I remember how I've heard this said over and over and over again in many different ways. The Word of God is the most exciting thing in the world. It's a sin to make the teaching of the Word of God boring. Not to hinder it, to draw it. The point is, again, if those whose responsibility it is to proclaim the Word of God fail to do so, the spiritual health of those in their congregation will inevitably suffer. It shouldn't surprise us, then, to find that God the Holy Spirit will bring severe discipline down upon those who fail in this area. Look now at Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. While you're turning there, and before we get into the exposition of Malachi itself, I want to warn you tonight that Malachi, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remember that, is going to be very graphic in this text. I want to warn you ahead of time. And I have no intention of diluting the content of what the Holy Spirit wrote so as not to offend anyone's sensibilities in here tonight. God intended to offend our sensibilities in this passage. And if that's God's intention, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He had every intention of getting our attention here. But if you follow through with me throughout this passage, it's going to get your attention. And I rather think that you won't forget this even come Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday of next week. The picture is going to be so graphic that you won't forget it. When I come across a passage like this, I tremble a bit. In fact, I don't just tremble a bit, I tremble a lot. Because this passage is severe. The discipline for those who do not fulfill their responsibility to preach accurately and competently is massive. It's severe. But, of course, this passage is going to have application that goes beyond just the one that's being presented. It has application for all of us. We have
have to be careful not to settle for having our ears tickled. We have to be careful not to settle for simply being entertained at the expense of the purity of the word and resulting spiritual growth. There is a difference, I hope you understand, between pure entertainment in a church and preaching that's entertaining. Entertaining preaching would be wonderful. People want one's attention just so long as it speaks through the word. I'm not promoting dull, boring, lifeless preaching, anything but that. But what I will speak out against is churches who promote simply entertainment in lieu of the preaching of the Word of God because they feel like they will not draw an audience if they tell you what God really said. That's what this passage will be all over. And Malachi, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to lay it on them. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priest. Verse 1 makes it clear that the next few verses, verses 2 through 9, were primarily directed at the priests who had the responsibility for preaching the word at that time. It has overflow. It has significance for the rest of us as well. But it was directed primarily at the priests. But we can learn a lot from that. Watching peripherally, we can see what our responsibility is then as those who receive the word. Verse 2, if you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings, and indeed I have cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. If you don't give honor to my name, in the context of this passage, failing to give honor to God's name is parallel with verse 8, where the priests have failed to accurately proclaim God's word. That's what it means to fail to give honor to God's name in this passage. They have caused, verse 8 will tell us, they have caused many to stumble. They have corrupted the covenant of Levi. That's what will be referred to, that's what is being referred to in verse 2. Because of the transgression, the priest would be cursed and not blessed. Who wants that? But because they failed in their responsibility, they would be cursed and not blessed. In fact, historically we know that their cursing had already begun by the time Malachi wrote this. The phrase, I will curse your blessings, is an interesting phrase. It probably means that things that were supposed to be privileges for the priests would be removed. The priests were to receive their income, their living, from the tithes of the people. Watch this. Because the priests weren't doing their job, the tithes weren't coming in, and then the priests weren't doing so they were, in some cases, really hungry. When the nation went through times of difficulty, the priority of the people would shift from taking care of those who taught them to work the word onto other things. It would shift away from them. But the thing is, they weren't preaching the word. So there is some divine irony here, a vicious cycle, if you will. It went like this. The priests failed in their responsibility. The people, because the priests failed, the people suffered economically, but more importantly, spiritually. When the people suffered economically and spiritually, the people then failed in their responsibility to God and by extension to the priests. And so then the priests suffered. You see the cycle? The priests don't do their job. The people suffer. The people suffer. They fail in their responsibility. The priests suffer. Now, there's one implication here. 
that's not in that vicious cycle. The implication is in this passage is that the people may not have wanted to hear in the first place. If you're preaching the Old Testament, if you're a pastor and teacher or a teacher in the New Testament, you have the responsibility of teaching, you've got to be responsible enough to the God who is your boss to preach on in spite of a lack of interest of the audience. You don't change the message because the audience may not be interested. And if you don't believe me, look at what's going to happen to these folks that did just that. It is not a pretty picture. Verse 3 lays it all out in twofold fashion. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces and the refuse of your feet, and you will be taken away with them. I warn you that this is disaster. I'm going to take away your feet. In this passage, in the New American Standard, it says take away your offspring. The word zarah can refer either to physical offspring, which is the way the New American Standard says it, or it can refer to grain. Given what's just been said in verse 2 about the economic problems that priesthood's going to have because they're failing to teach the word, it's more likely that grain is in view as a measure of physical or economic prosperity. Then the key idea, the idea that causes me to tremble. I'm going to spread refuse on your faces. Some translations attempt to soften the real meaning here, the message, for example, puts it this way. I'm going to splatter your faces with rotten garbage. The New International Version. I'm going to spread on your faces the offal of your festival sacrifice. Now listen, that's Greek. Anybody know what offal means? Maybe a couple. But not many. I don't think so. It's really neat to do that because you can give a really offensive passage a little less offense if you put a word like that in. A fall could be the intestines of sacrificial animals. But the more, and this would be backwards. But the more common usage of teres is excrement, fecal material. The Holy Spirit wanted the priests in the restaurant to visualize the horrible and the grotesque image of having the excrement of sacrificed animals spread on the faces of the priests. What should have been associated with a garbage dump. See, all that stuff is to be taken out. The intestines and the excrement. It should have been taken out and put in the garbage dump. It should have been associated with the garbage dump outside of the city. Now it's associated with the priests. It's on them. In effect, they would be taken away to the garbage dump with the rest of the excrement. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying here. And this is scary. I know many people today that are not that interested in preaching the Word. I know a lot of people that aren't interested in hearing the Word preached. Or if there is some interest, the people insist on having it packaged in such a way that provides for maximum entertainment or enjoyment of the message rather than maximum conviction from the message. Nobody wants to be convicted. God has other ideas. He takes this seriously. The spiritual lives of the hearers are at stake. Salvation is at stake. 
when we water down the gospel, salvation is at stake. Who are we to do that? But not just that. When we, when after someone is saved, when we water down the teaching of the word for believers, and most of the word of God is that. When we water that down, when we refuse to teach it, and again, I am not knocking particular methods. I am saying that some methods, with some methods, it's difficult to preach the message of it is. So don't get off on a tangent with regard to this pastor or that pastor with regard to style or technique. What I'm talking about is a refusal, no matter what your style or technique, to preach the word. Because, as a pastor, you're afraid that if you preach the word and you really tell it like it is, in love and in kindness, that's an admonition too, but tell it like it is in love and in kindness, your audience is not going to be as large as it would be if you didn't. And when you go to the next pastor's conference, which starts on Monday, and you have 200 people attending your church on Monday, by the time you get to Friday, you've got 800 people attending your church. You know what I mean? How many people yell at Sunday? You're 200. Tuesday, how many people yell at Sunday? We're about 250. By the time you get to Friday, how many people yell at Sunday? We're about 800 people. That's good. The best, the best church growth thing in the world is go to pastor's conference. You only need 200, you leave with 800. The spiritual life of believers is at stake. Both their salvation and their spiritual walk. This is not a light subject. It's extremely important. Either way, those with the responsibility to teach had better not cave to public pressure and teach in some sort of sophomoric manner to please the crowd because God is watching and He will judge. See why I said that passage makes some sense? If I don't do my job, it's just like the Old Testament priest. That's what God wants from me. A face covered with excrement, the excrement of a sinner. Something that should have been discarded. I don't know that's offensive. I know it turns color. But God, the Holy Spirit, wanted it to turn this color. This is the end of the Old Testament. It gets very graphic here. Now, that happens already earlier in the prophets as well. Verse 4. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. I'm doing this to get your attention, priests, and I'm doing this to get everyone else's attention. It got my attention. As I studied through this passage, it got my attention. Fear and trembling kind of attention. Look at verses 5 and 6. My covenant with him, he's talking about Levi, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned back many from iniquity. In contrast to the present priest of Malachi's day, Levi and his descendants had given the Israelites true instruction rather than compromise teaching. Levi, as the representative of his offspring, walked with the Lord in peace and in uprightness. And he turned many away from sinful lifestyles. Not just Levi, but Levi and his offspring. The term Levi is used of all of them. Verse 7 asserts that people should be able to trust those who preach God's word. They should be able to assume that what is being spoken has been well-researched, well-studied, and would be presented in a manner which you can get that message across. 
you have a right to expect competency in the pulpit. You have a responsibility to expect competency in the pulpit. And if you don't get it, you need to find it. Because lives are at stake. Well, that's not what happens. I mean, we seek, when we talk to the the teacher of the word, take that responsibility for granted. Look at how the chapter ends in verses 8 and 9. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. Now, again, he's talking to the preachers here. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. What Malachi is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he closes this chapter is that your failure caused the failure of those that trusted you to do your job. Yes, those who allege to speak for God are held to a high standard. If I was in charge of putting together a group that was going to build a bridge, and I went and found the appropriate engineers and the architects that had all the initials behind their names and all the certifications, and I asked them to build me a bridge that would hold a certain amount of tonnage across a river, and this community was going to pay for that bridge, I would expect that those men and women that were in charge of putting those plans together knew what they were doing and would fully apply themselves to the project. Wouldn't you? I would hope that they would do that. If I'm going to risk the lives of all the people in my community, say I'm a mayor or a city manager or something, if I'm going to risk the lives of the people in my community to get them from one side of that river to the other, I would expect the people to know what they were doing and to put their best effort into it. You have a right to expect that of those that are teaching you the Word of God. But that's not what was happening in Malachi. The people that were supposed to had failed in their responsibility. So the bridge collapsed. People's spiritual lives were in ruin. So yes, people that proclaim the Word of God, if you stand up before an audience of one or of a thousand and say, thus says the Lord, this is what Malachi is saying, you better be darn sure that that's what Malachi is saying. You can't just open it up an hour before you get up to preach or listen to a tape in your car on the way to church on a Sunday morning that you bought off the Internet, happens, that you bought off the Internet, and then preach away, brother. It doesn't work that way. God is not satisfied with that. You will cause the shipwreck of the people that are listening to you. So pastors and those who teach, Pastor teachers and then those who teach, two separate categories, are held to a high standard. It's not a standard of perfection. Fortunately, we all make mistakes all the time. It's not a standard of perfection, but it is one of faithfulness and competence. That's what God expects. He expects you to receive as much training as you can and then to apply yourself once you have that training. Anybody that's been to seminary knows that's just hard. Seminary doesn't teach you everything you need to know. Primarily what they teach you is how to learn what you need to know and giving you a good start. Those who are in the teaching ministry should have a lifetime ministry of learning and then presenting what is being learned. Because you did not do this, perhaps, perhaps because the people were more interested in the approbation of the people 
perhaps they were more interested in being able to brag to their friends about how many people came to their church. Why? The reasons are this. But because you have done this, the very approbation that you seek so much is going to be gladly delivered. The very people that you were trying to impress by not teaching them the word is going to be gladly delivered. This experience, this is faith. Charles Spurgeon, I think, nailed this over 100 years ago in a piece that he wrote called Feeding Sheep or Entertaining Goats. While, while we're a century removed from the culture of Spurgeon's day, Solomon's old saying that there's nothing new under the sun, I think, fits very well here. Charles Spurgeon. An evil resides in the professed camp of the Lord, so gross in its impudence that the most short-sighted can hardly fail to notice it. During the past few years, it has developed at an abnormal rate evil for evil. It has worked like leaven until the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning. From speaking out as the Puritans did, the church gradually toned down her testimony, then winked at and excused the frivolities of the day. Then she tolerated them in her order. Now, she has adopted them under the plea of reaching the masses. My first contention is that providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. If it is a Christian work, why did Christ not speak of it? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's clear enough. So it would have been if he would have added and provide amusement for those who do not relish the gospel. No such words, however, are to be found. It did not seem to occur to him. Then again, he gave some as apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry. Where do the entertainers come in? The Holy Spirit was silent concerning them. Were the prophets persecuted because they amused the people or because they were few? Concert has no marvel there. Again, providing entertainment is in direct antagonism to the teaching and life of Christ and the apostles. What was the attitude of the church to the world? You are the salt. Not truly a candy or something the world would spit out and not swallow. Short and sharp was the utterance. Let the dead bury their dead. He was often entertaining. Had Christ introduced more of the bright and pleasant elements into his mission, he would have been more popular when they went back because of the searching nature of his teaching. I do not hear him say, run after these people, Peter, and tell them that we have a different style of service tomorrow, something short and attractive to bring them to preach him. We will have a pleasant evening for the people. Tell them that they will be sure to enjoy it. Be quick, Peter. We must get to the people somehow. Or think of those years ago that you shared. Jesus pitied sinners, sighed and wept over them, but never sought to amuse them. In vain will the epistles be searched to find any trace of the gospel of amusement. Their message is, come out, keep out, keep clean out. Anything approaching feeding 
is conspicuous by its absence. Now that is a statement that we would not even with Haman and then somewhere along the line get to that point. We'll go back to the first. They had boundless confidence in the gospel and enjoyed no other welcome. After Peter and John were locked up for preaching, the church had a prayer meeting, but they did not pray, Lord, grant thy servants that by a wise and disseminated use of innocent recreation, we may show these people how happy we are. If they ceased not from preaching Christ, they had no time for arranging entertainment. Scattered by persecution, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. They turned the world upside down. That's the difference. Lord, cheer the church of all the rot and rubbish the devil has imposed on her and bring us back to apostolic methods. Lastly, Spurgeon writes, the mission of amusement fails to affect the end that it desires. It works havoc among young converts. Let the careless and the scoffers who thank God because the church met them halfway choose and testify. Let the heavy laden who found peace through the concert not keep silence. Let the drunkard to whom dramatic entertainment has been God's means and the chain of their conversion stand up and unto answer. The mission of amusement produces no convert. The need for the hour of today's ministry is believing scholarship joined with earnest spirituality, the one springing from the other or from the root. The need is biblical doctrine so understood and felt that it sets men on fire. Again, I have no problem with preaching that's entertaining or a worship service that's entertaining or music that's well sung. Oh, we need to do our music well. It needs to be as good as it can possibly be. I have no problem with attending a worship service that's entertaining. What I have a problem with is the same thing that Spurgeon had a problem with. Entertainment in lieu of the preaching of the Word of God. Thinking that somehow we can bait and switch them. If we just get them to come on Sunday morning and then we can get them into these classes during the week, then we can get them saved. The Bible does not speak of that anywhere. And I have a responsibility to you to teach you what the Word of God says. I have no intention of having happened to me what's happening in verse 3 of this text. Not when it can be prevented. If those whose responsibility it is to proclaim God's word fail to do so, the spiritual health of those in their congregations will inevitably suffer. God will severely punish those who abrogate. 